in the past. It's done, it's unchanging, that's the end of it. Or does it change every day? We'll talk with John Y. Simon about changing historical interpretations when we come back to Civil War Talk Radio. How much time each day do you spend managing your personal or business calendar? 15 minutes, a half an hour, maybe more. Is the conference room available for next week's meeting? And how many people do you have to ask to find out? Have you ever misplaced or, worse yet, lost your day planner or handheld device? And what do you do about that missing information? Do you own or operate a salon or carpet cleaning business? How about a realty office or any one of a thousand other service-based organizations? Can your customers make their appointments even when your office is closed? If any of this sounds familiar, then Schedule Online is the solution for you. For more information, call toll-free 888-668-3355. That's 888-668-3355. Or visit us online at www.scheduleonline.com. It's the one level playing field in business, the Internet. It's where an artisan working out of a small shop can look bigger than a multinational corporation. But to achieve this level of visibility, your company's website needs a developer who knows the net and how to make it work. Your company needs Apsio. Apsio's success comes from producing websites that reflect the attitudes and uniqueness of their respective organizations. Make a great first impression on the web. Choose Apsio, A-P-S-Y-O. For more info, visit www.apsio.com. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. With me today is John Y. Simon, editor of the papers of Ulysses S. Grant. John, we were talking a minute ago about Grant's reputation fluctuating over the years. You pointed out the recent poll in North and South Magazine. Uh, put Grant at the top of Civil War generals, where 30 years ago most historians would have likely selected Lee as the greatest general. Now, if I'm someone who's just reading about the war out of curiosity, and I find out that everything I learn is going to be changed every 30 years, I might just give up in disgust and start collecting baseball cards. Uh, why... Uh, how, how isn't history in the past? Isn't it done? Why why do interpretations keep changing? That's a very good question, Jerry. Uh, it changes uh, for the same reason that uh, hemlines change on women's clothes uh, every year, and for some of the same reasons why there's fluctuation in the stock market. Uh, some of that is based upon new information, new data. Part of it is based upon uh, uh, changes in uh, perception, changes in uh, wishes. I've always found the uh, changes in our approach to history to be um, fascinating and uh, cautionary as well. The idea that uh, one can learn history and uh, that's going to serve you for 50 years that uh, the information you pick up today is going to be serviceable in the future. 
uh, isn't entirely true. That we are changing our interpretations. We are we are interacting between the people we are now and the people who were then. We're interested in things that uh, are of immediate concern to all of us now, and these influence the way that we look at the past. The Hot Lincoln book um, for the coming months, uh, and I think you know this already, Jerry, is is to be a book on uh, was Lincoln gay? Um, Why in the world are we getting a big book uh, trying to discuss whether or not Lincoln was gay? Well, because we've just been through a presidential election where some of those issues, gay and lesbian issues, uh, same-sex marriage, got to be very important to the American people. We're thinking about those things. They're on our minds. And this is why um, there's going to be a, a um, an extended discussion of the merits of this particular book, um, I have no idea what's in it because I haven't seen the book yet, and uh, I'm a doubter even before I see it. But whatever's on our mind is going to be reflected uh, in our scholarship as well. We're going to take a new look uh, in all the Civil War fields at uh, the role of women, for example, because there's been a revolution in the status of women in our society. They there has been such a marked change over what I guess we would call the last 40 years that um, a history that uh, uh, neglects the uh, role of women is uh, it's just not acceptable anymore. Uh, this book you mentioned, I think it's by C.A. Tripp, uh, dealing with, with Lincoln's sexuality, uh, published either late 2004 or early 2005. Uh, I, I think that's that's a great example of how the questions we ask change over time. Uh, I know you can go back 80 years to the 1920s and find uh, people arguing vociferously over whether Abraham Lincoln's mother was illegitimate or not. Uh, was Nancy Hanks born out of wedlock or not? Which is a question today you couldn't find people wouldn't be bothered to walk across the street to get the answer. <laughs> well, yeah. It the no only important matters. thing is that Lincoln thought so. And that's very important. Well, that, now that is important. Uh, but what, whether we think so and whether we're going to make a giant fuss to uh, clear him is another question. One of the uh, interesting um, uh, subjects of discussion of more than 60 years ago uh, was the Ann Rutledge legend. Um, was Lincoln actually in love with somebody named Ann Rutledge before he uh, settled into a marriage with uh, Mary Todd? Well, many people, uh, and particularly uh, a couple at the University of Illinois, attacked this uh, with vigor as some sort of legend, as some sort of myth, as some sort of disgrace. The idea that um, uh, our noble Lincoln was in love with someone who died in uh, 1835, uh, several years before he met Mary Todd, was just intolerable. Because for every man there is one woman, 
And if he falls in love with uh, that woman, he's never going to fall in love with another one. That, that can't be a real and substantial marriage that Lincoln entered into. Well, the, it's the silliest nonsense um, from our modern perspective. Almost everybody who's listening to this uh, radio program has probably been in love with more than one person in the course of his or her lifetime. That is, it's the sort of thing that well begins in high school, goes through um, um, a, a grown-up uh, period, and uh, uh, who knows when it's going to end. But uh, for those who... Uh, thought it was terribly important that for every man there was one woman, for every woman there was one man. The idea that um, Lincoln had been seriously in love with someone who died in 1835, that is, several years before he met Mary Todd, was simply intolerable. Um, a strange sort of uh, psychological quirk was at work on that one. Now, let me try another angle where our modern perspective has changed. Um, the stories or rumors or uh, evidence, uh, whatever you would call it, of Grant's alcohol use. Uh, we don't see that the same as, as it was seen. We don't see alcohol as a society the same as we saw it 50 years ago. No, we don't. There's been a major change um... Uh, in in our attitude towards alcohol, you know, uh, every once in a while you'll see a really old movie where uh, the detective comes to this beautiful woman's apartment and uh, she'll say, I'm going to get into something more comfortable, pour yourself a drink. There's a whole bar out there. All that liquor. Um, people drank um, in uh, a very ritualistic way. Any a beautiful woman who was trying to entice a detective to her apartment would probably have bottle after bottle out on a special bar with uh, ice cubes and what have you. Um, we just don't see anything like that today. I don't think we saw that much of it in the 1930s outside of the movies, but there was uh, that, that idea that um, uh, drinking was a um, an important part of a, um, a rich social life, and uh, we've moved away from that. And we've also moved away from the idea that uh, people who uh, drank to excess were um, weak and uh, undesirable characters. That is, we're more inclined to view alcoholism as a disease than as um, uh, a nasty habit. But during the era of the nasty habit, uh, Grant was frequently uh, viewed as a uh, kind of uh, drunk, as a kind of uh, weak character who succumbed uh, to alcohol. Actually, uh, the evidence that he drank to excess at any time is not only weak, but um, the evidence that uh, he might have been an alcoholic is absolutely non-existent. He drank, by the way, all his life in moderation. 
that is a glass of wine here, a whiskey toddy there, and uh, without any adverse effects, alcoholics cannot do that. So the the idea that uh, he had uh, an aide de camp who sort of kept an eye on him and and kept him away from from the harmful effects of alcohol is no longer generally accepted. It's not uh, certainly not as popular as it used to be. It uh, uh, had a lot to do with um, a great deal of uh, carryover of the idea of uh, the lost cause. That is. Uh, uh, it was very hard for uh, Southerners to attack Lincoln, so they always uh, focused on Grant. Um, and one of the uh, interesting books of the early uh, 20th century discussing the Civil War is Lincoln or Lee, as if they were the primary opponents. It, uh, they weren't. It was Lincoln or Jefferson Davis. It was Lee versus Grant. Uh, but the idea of Lincoln versus Lee was uh, to put the best of both sides in opposition in uh, the Civil War setting, and despite the illogic of it, uh, it was a popular account. In, uh, I guess it would have been around the same era, maybe late 20s or 30s, that James Thurber wrote his, uh, his great short story, If Grant Had Been Drinking at Appomattox, uh, where he, it was a spoof on the... Uh, the the counterfactual histories that, uh, as part of the lost cause mythology, imagined a southern victory, and uh, if if different things had happened, and Thurber theorized what would have happened had Grant been drinking, and he presents an entire rambling monologue. It's uh, it's quite funny. Yeah, and then uh, at the end, uh, Grant uh, tries to surrender. <laughs> yeah, so he unbuckles his sword and hands it over. If I if I hadn't been drinking, we would have whipped you. Yeah, uh, something like that. It's a it's a it's a good story. Well, in the course of editing Grant's papers, is this one of the sources where we find changing interpretations of history? Did you come across new documents, new information? What we do uh, from time to time, but it's uh, basically what we want to do is to present a documentary record, something that everybody can go to for uh, verification, for elimination of... Uh, uh, various uh, legends and uh, misconceptions. Uh, they're, they're often uh, fostered, by the way, in our society by uh, uh, movies or television. Uh, people see historical characters behaving in a certain way uh, on television, and uh, uh, they're quite likely to ask someone like me, well, did it really happen? Did it really happen that way? Um the fictionalization of history has a great deal to do with uh, the desire of some of us to create a documentary record to which everybody can go uh, to ask those questions about, did it really happen? So in it, these these papers presumably consist of, of letters, of reports, of, uh, uh, of anything Grant recorded. Uh, Grant wrote a great deal, and uh, in these volumes, we also uh, put the correspondence uh, addressed to him so that uh, we get to see both sides of the uh, uh, picture there, and uh, uh, is really the the essence of, of the kind of editing that's done now. 
that the incoming letters as well as the letters of uh, American leaders are printed. But there's also a new interest in uh, documentary editions of the papers of plain people or of uh, uh, people who normally are not uh, well-known historically, of uh, uh, of women. Now, that's That's been a very strong component of modern editing, of... Uh, uh, radicals, of dissenters, of uh, reformers, um, whereas editing used to be confined to uh, uh, the greatest statesmen and thinkers of American society. Well, <coughs> I think that ought to be done, but uh, it ought to be uh, part of a rounded picture. Now, these these records you're compiling, uh, primary sources, as, as historians call them, are are the building blocks of, of most written history. You go back to the, whenever you can, to the original words of someone like Grant, or as you point out, uh, of ordinary soldiers, of uh, uh, farmers, of uh, housewives, people at, at any level. But aren't there dangers there? Uh, Weren't Grant's memoirs, for example, written not just to tell the absolute truth, but to, to put a favorable spin on his own career? Well, all memoirs are. Um, and that's taken for granted. Uh, Grant's are, are written with uh, a rare degree of candor and uh, equanimity and uh, fairness. Um, compared to the other Civil War memoirs of that period, that are often uh, just uh, um, brutally uh, uh, defensive and uh, defamatory of those with whom they uh, disagreed. It, it was, for many people, their one opportunity to create um, a spot where the sun would always shine on them. And uh, for Grant, it really wasn't necessary. He was understood to have been the great hero of the American Civil War, the man who next to Lincoln or with Lincoln saved the Union and uh, was such a, um, a revered figure in his own lifetime. He had no need to enhance his reputation through memoirs, which was not true of uh, General Beauregard, for example. Or McClellan. Or McClellan. Or uh, any one of a number of other uh, general officers, some of whom are still in the doghouse despite their um, uh, fervent uh, epistolary and uh, literary efforts. Well, I think Grant's memoirs, uh, like Grant's generalship, rank at the very top uh, of their class, and uh, many historians would agree uh, with that evaluation. What I'd like to do is come back and talk some more about uh, this and about current interpretations of Grant, Lincoln, and other figures. So we'll be doing that in just a moment when we come back to Civil War Talk Radio. Mm-hmm. 